Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. And welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the podcast where we talk about genetic improvements in medicine and agriculture that benefit people and benefit the planet. And today's a really different kind of Talking Biotech Podcast. We're talking to Columbia, Missouri, to Laboratory of Chris Pierce. And um, Chris has a number of... Chris, how many people in your lab right now? What do we have? Eight people? Six people? Depends on how many people you count. You count the undergrads, we have a small army. Oh, we don't count them. <laughs> no, no. So we have one one postdoc and five grad students. Okay, and, and with us today are two grad students, right? This is Mackenzie and Sean? Yes. Yeah. Hi. Okay, so yeah, Mackenzie, well, tell us a little bit about what you do and maybe where you're from and what you're working on now. Yeah, uh, I'm Mackenzie Mabry. I am from California originally, and I'm a PhD student in Chris's lab. I am currently studying and trying to understand polyploid genomics, specifically just how um, that relates to the, the phenotype or how something looks. Okay, Sean, uh, same question. Like, where are you from and what are you doing now? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm Sean Abrams. I, I'm from South Florida. Um, I currently, in uh, Chris's lab, I'm working on metabolite evolution and how that relates to polyploidy and brassica species. Okay, that sounds great. And really where we're at today, and I, this is why I wanted to talk to your laboratory and the experts therein, is because there's been a lot of discussion over the years of can we have a podcast to talk about the diversity within brassicas and primarily around the brassicas that we're consuming on almost a daily basis, the ones that give us healthful benefits that sort of evolved from this thought of a wild cabbage into a variety of different foodstuffs today and maybe some of the genetic changes that happened along the way. And so could um, maybe one of you start out by just kind of talking a little bit about those brassicas and maybe where what is the ancestral form that we're talking about uh, when we're talking about the brassicas we're consuming in our diet? So specifically when we talk about brassica oleracea, we're specifically more 
thinking about our crops, the vegetable crops. So Brasco oleracea has multiple cultivars, including cabbage, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, kohlrabi, and Brussels sprouts. And the you know the original wild form, its most wild form, is possibly something like a wild cabbage. Um, but there, you know, these different ones are all across great to eat and that original uh, event that they were you know domesticated from is still something that we're trying to understand so there's a couple of theories one theory might be that you know they're from the mediterranean area like sicily and another theory is that they're more from england and we have some preliminary evidence to think that they mostly from the mediterranean area in sicily and a lot of times when we make those guesses based upon, say, molecular data, we actually find out that both hypotheses were correct. Is there, uh, what is the evidence supporting uh, England versus the Sicilian origin? It turns out that a lot of the things that we thought were, quote, wild in England are actually de-domesticated feral. And actually, you can see these. So if, um, like McKinsey and I from California, if you go to the California coast, you can see woody wild cabbage types but these are actually feral escapes from cultivated so you can in a way kind of see evolution going backwards um seeing these feral forms oh that's really uh, that's really cool i never really thought about that we never really discussed that on the podcast before but you're actually taking things so it's, it's evidence of things that once were domesticated have escaped into the wild and now undergone natural selection to fit into a niche where they previously didn't exist. <laughs> exactly. They've even become more woody again, more perennial, and uh, better able to fight off insects, for example. Wow. It, it's, I can think of some people this has happened to, too. So that's <laughs> kind, of, kind of cool. So when, when was the idea that, uh, let's go with the Sicilian origin of domestication, um, when did that happen, and was... and any idea about maybe why it happened? We don't really have a date or an idea. It's something that I would like to figure out throughout my research. But um, one of, you know, the idea of why it happened, probably just like any domestication story, someone thought it would be good to eat, and they were right. There's not a lot of archaeological evidence for Brassicolaracea. You know, the seeds and things don't become fossils like, you know, wheat and corn and things do. But there is some evidence that... Um, the Mediterranean sea trade um, was critical for moving the wild forms and domesticated forms around from, uh, you know, the islands of Crete and Sicily all the way around um, the entire Mediterranean basin, which differs from like Brassica Rapa, which was moved by people across the Silk Road and things like that. Yeah, the the other t- thing that I always notice, especially when you go to a place like the Louvre or like, you know, more uh, an examine work from antiquity, is you sometimes see evidence of different crops in the artwork and you you always see them with grapes and things but you never see them with like a you know a a head of broccoli broccoli. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's always it's always wheat and corn in the cornucopias right they're not called broccolopias they're called cornucopias (laughs) oh maybe you'll have to work on that broccolopia Exactly. <laughs> oh, I think that, I just set that word up. That's a really good word. It, <laughs> it really is. It's a really appropriate, uh, really appropriate, uh, apt 
I, I just I just mixed appropriate and apt, so we're at a whole new lexicon today. Um, a, a very appropriate way of thinking about this, because it really was that first genetic basis that gave forth this very diverse set of other vegetables. And were there any real hints as to some of the first domestication uh, features? Like, so you have this wild cabbage that, well, first, why don't you describe that wild form first? What did that look like most uh, what what did that look like? What is the best explanation of what that was? So if you look at the wild species that are on the coasts of Sicily and Greece and Italy, they're kind of um, woody, almost, leafy. And you can imagine, if you look at them, how they might become a kale or a cabbage, right? So the idea was that probably the first ones that were domesticated were ones that were where you were eating the leaves, and then we know that there were some, uh, a few key mutations, kind of like how corn um, evolved from teosinte, so to speak, um, where things like broccoli and cauliflower um, arose later. So some of those genes have been identified, but really um, this is the kind of research that Mackenzie and Sean and other people are going to be working on in the next couple of years. And are there any real hints about how it radiated from its original domestication center? No, but that's a thing that I might be able to look at with my research. Field trip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely pushing to go to the Mediterranean to collect some of these. <laughs> well, that's that's really interesting thought that you'd be able to actually see evidence of genetic change across, say, space in the wild form. But I think about you know, are there um, are there is there any evidence? of ways that people may have moved this thing from place, one place to another. I know you mentioned the Silk Road and other issues with Rapa, but um, any anything with Ulraci? No, not not at the not the moment. <laughs> the problem is the seeds the problem is the seeds are not very easily distinguished from other species of, of brassicas. So it's hard to know if you're looking at a, you know an ancient canola or an ancient turnip or a, you know a really old broccoli. Um, as opposed to you know the durum wheats and the different kinds of um, spread wheats and things like that, they are a little bit more easily identified when they're found in grain storage units. Broccoli doesn't store very well, apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, you you have to first like it in order to keep it, in order to grow it to store it. So I think that might be the inhibition too. Um, but let's talk about that really quickly. What are some of the what are what are the major offshoots in Oloraceae that that are that we recognize. So you mentioned them once briefly before, but go through with maybe a little more detail. So we have this fundamental cabbagey kale looking wild plant. And what are the things that we would recognize from the grocery store? So broccoli is probably the one that's most recognizable and everyone is pretty familiar with the broccoli is. And then cauliflower looks very similar to broccoli, but Typically, it has the, the white curd instead of the green that you see with broccoli. Kohlrabi is an interesting one. That's one that people may be less familiar with, but it has a large turnip-like base, so it's very similar looking to turnip, but it is Brasco oleracea. It's called kohlrabi. And then there is Brussels sprouts. So Brussels sprouts are also very unique looking. They have a long stalk with a lot of buds on each side or all around this major main stalk. And then last is that, or one of the other ones that I really like is kale. And within kale, there is so much diversity. You have dinosaur kale, so it kind of looks crinkly, the leaves. 
there's curly kale and the leaves are really curly. And there's also some like really beautiful coloration within all of these. Broccolini is another one that people may be uh, familiar with, especially if they're eating Chinese food. So lots of different varieties within it, which is one of the reasons I really enjoy studying it because they all there's one species that has all these different phenotypes or the way that they look. Oh, very cool! And we're, we're when you talk about these different. Uh, versions inside the same species and this is what got me excited to talk to, to you in the first place was it, the analogy is really with the dog that the dog was domesticated say from the gray wolf which you can kind of think of as that first cabbagey kale thing and that from that humans have made selections that gave us the huge diversity that we have today and very parallel in lots of ways I mean, I think you said it really well, but yeah, we affectionately call Brasca oleracea the dogs of the plant world for that reason. <laughs> they they are that single species that many different versions have derived from. I think one thing, one thing that's key about Brasca oleracea and Brasca rapa versus a lot of other crops is pretty much the entire plant has been domesticated into these different forms. So, you know, if you domesticate a tomato, of course, there's many traits that change, but you're really focused on the fruit, right, or a corn cob or the grape, whereas in these different forms of brassica, you have kohlrabi, which is the underground part, the kales and the cabbage, which are the leafy parts, and then the broccolis and the cauliflowers, which are the sexy bits. So they've all been, you know, every part of the plant has been domesticated into these, into these different forms. The sexy bits. <laughs> okay, to each his well, own, I, you know. Uh, but I, I, did, I didn't want to go into, you know, what uh, the subparts of the flower morphology and get too technical, but you know. No, I got you. I got you. But I guess the the the, 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 the 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 fun part about this is that, and this is kind of where I was hoping to go next was. So you talked about things like kohlrabi, which was which which I associate more with India, and. Um, uh, Brussels sprouts, which I, I guess I associate with Belgium, <laughs> but wh- where um, are these I, different? I, are the different forms were they actually domesticated in remarkably different places for those different traits? That's a good question. I think um, the short answer is we don't know, but typically a lot of the root types, be it kohlrabi and oleracea or turnip and brassicarapa or the Swedes or rutabagas of Brassica nepis were often cultivated in the northern Europe where in colder climates. And actually, if you're familiar with our tradition of carving uh, pumpkins or jack-o'-lanterns, that tradition actually comes from carving uh, the underground parts of those plants and um, other things. Um, so you didn't know that? No, I didn't yeah, know that. Car- yeah, so you can find like old pictures of people carving like turnips and kohlrabis and things <laughs> like that. When they came to the U.S., they said, pumpkins? These are really cool and big. So anyway, that's a very Northern European tradition. Things like broccoli and cauliflower are more, like if you ever go to Italy, there's many kinds of broccoli. Many, many, and broccolini and Romanescu, um, you know, fractal kind of imagery of things. And then things like cauliflower were moved to um, countries like India, where cauliflower is now in, in Asia, where they're now huge crops. But they definitely all came from Europe, for sure. Well, that's a really great place for us to take a break. What we'll do is we'll take a few minutes here. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more about the genetics and some of the things we're learning from molecular techniques that help us discern these different varieties from each other and help us give ideas about maybe where this can go in the future. You're listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Talking Biotech podcast has one goal, and that's to get you excited about your food, new technologies, and the good things we can do when we put the two together. We live in a time of great innovation and discovery, yet the new findings are slow, oftentimes, to reach the public. And, and why is that? Because of the tremendous misunderstanding, coupled to a complacent population that would rather err to the side of caution, rather than implement safe technology that can help farmers, consumers, and the planet. And that's why it's so important that you listen and share the stories of agricultural technology. That's why this podcast is important, because it provides you with access to the experts that tell the beautiful stories of the genetic improvement of crops, animals, and medicines. So please make sure you complete a review on iTunes, share the podcast with a friend, listen to it around the dinner table, and Share the stories of the secret lives of the botanical critters in each layer of that seven-layer salad. With your help, we can move agricultural innovation to application, and that happens with communication. We're all in this together to bring safe and affordable technologies that help our people and our planet. We're back on the Talking Biotech podcast today talking about brassicas, but specifically brassica oleracea. How do I say that correctly? Oleraceae? Oleracea. Oleracea. Okay. And I've never said it right in my life, but I've seen it a million times and I've, I've taught about <laughs> it. So, um, But we're talking about this, and we normally talk about this crop or this species as the dog of the plant world because the foundational species that came from the wild was domesticated by humans and became important food crops for many different cultures and are many different recognizable forms that we see in the produce section that all stem from, <laughs> get the joke, stem from, the one, <laughs> they all stem from, <laughs> they all stem from one basic variety or one basic, one basic foundational plant at its root. Um, but we're talking today with Chris Pierce and Shauna McKenzie from his lab and uh, at Colum- University of Missouri at Columbia. And um, we're talking about this crop where they are experts, mostly in the, the, the genomics and biology of identifying the origins of, the, of different species in the brassicas. Um, so going back to this, we talked about what this is and maybe a little bit about the different forms. But what is the genetic evidence that we have that allows us to, say, separate the events that allowed this foundational form of, the, of this wild cabbage to turn into things like uh, cauliflower or broccoli or others? So we've um, collected a wide range of all the morphotypes that have been domesticated. So cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, as well as a selection of the wild species that occur in Sicily and all over the Mediterranean. And we used genomic sequencing to, and also transcriptome sequencing, where we sequenced the RNA versus the DNA, to get a bunch of DNA variants to then make basically a family tree. So you can make a pedigree of dogs, for example, or you can make a family tree for your own human family. So basically we made such a family tree for the brassicas. 
And is uh, and so what? What do we learn from the family tree? Both say relationships within Olracia or and outside, like say to the other brassicas, like canola and others. So first of all, we were able to show that some of the wild forms that people thought were potential um, ancestral types are actually feral forms from domesticated types. Okay. So they're kind of like your dog that's gone back in the wild and become a wolf again. Right? There are cabbages that are now growing back on cliffs that look woody and not at all like a cabbage that you would like to eat. And the other thing we found is that it looks like the origin of brassica oracea is more Mediterranean, Eastern Mediterranean than, say, Western Europe. And then finally, we were able to show that brassica, one of these brassica oracea's and brassica rapa merged about 10,000 years ago to become brassica nepis, which, like brassica oracea, have different morphotypes, including um, canola that's harvested for its seed, and uh, swede, which is an underground, has an underground storage part that we eat, like rutabaga, and also kale types, but that they're not brassica oracea kale, they're a brassica nepis kale. So all three of these species, brassica oracea, brassica rapa, and brassica nepis, have been selected multiple times for root, leaf, and um, seed storage parts. And maybe just to expand on that tree a little bit, what what is brassica juncia? So, <laughs> this is a whole other... Um, the, the nomenclature of brassica, which is something Sean's going to work on for his PhD project, is a mess. So I don't know if you remembered um, many years ago, tomato used to have the genus name like a persicum, and potato was solanum. Yep. And there was a huge uproar when it was discovered that a tomato is really a type of potato. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and all the taxonomy had to be redone. Well, the same thing could be coming for Brassica, because it turns out that Brassica nigra, which is um, a diploid that would cross to Brassica rapa and Brassica oleracea, makes Brassica gensia and Brassica carinata. These are like actually pretty far away, and you have to decide if they're going to be their own genus, so not Brassica or within Brassica. So it's a taxonomic nightmare. Brassica nigra, for example, is much more uh, closely related to something like Sinopis alba, which is yellow mustard. And it, uh, so calling it Sinopis alba, not a brassica, but brassica nigra brassica, and saying that it's closely related to brassica oleracea, it, it creates this um, mess of uh, understanding as far as their evolutionary relationships. Yeah, it's always been confusing for me to understand exactly how these things fit together, especially because there's so much diversity within that nothing really fits easy into a box. You know, it's but I had to throw it out there just to get it out there. Um, but what about if we start looking at, say, the level of specific genes? And I know a lot has been done on this, but can you give us some hints as to how something like maybe uh, cauliflower might be different from the foundational form or broccoli. Is it really just one or two genes, or are there a lot of changes that are happening during that domestication process? Yeah, so I think that's, uh, if you're asking the differences, like it's the genetic differences between these different morphotypes, like cabbage, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, I think you know there are some genes that have been identified, but we're not exactly sure if it's a single gene, if it's a regulatory difference, or is it multiple genes that are causing this difference. So that's one thing that I'm working on for 
for my PhD. So hopefully in a few years I have some sort of an answer to you, be more specific. With a history of poly, uh, po- uh, polyploidy in the tribe whole, or whole genome duplication in the history of the um, Brississi, which is the tribe in which these crops are, um, you have a lot of genes that are interacting in um, a lot of different ways. So it could be, it, that's part of the difficulty in identifying specific um, genes that are causing this. Yeah, I think back to like the work in Elliot Meyerowitz's lab where they talked about uh, genes that affected meristem identity or meristem form, and they actually called the gene cauliflower because it made the meristem, made the floral meristem look like a cauliflower. And I was always curious if that was, being that Arabidopsis is also a brassica, that it is this gene name, this kind of funny name that they gave it, that gave this kind of look that resembled the cultivated variety, is, is, is that really the foundational change that occurred? And is there any, any further thoughts on that? Or have you seen any evidence of genes that have been identified, say, in Arabidopsis that really do look like they match what you're finding in the brassicas? Not yet. <laughs> yes, good um, answer. It's job yeah, security. I, I mean, that is like, of course, you, that, that gene that you're specifically talking about is one that I'm keeping an eye out for when I'm doing my analyses. But I, I, there's, there's a lot more to the story is what I'm guessing. It really is. I mean, it's complicated for two reasons. One reason is what Sean already mentioned, that for Brassica rapa, Brassica oleracea, and Brassica nigra, there's been three rounds of whole genome duplication or polypoidy um, since it diverged from Arabidopsis. So if you found a gene in Arabidopsis, you know, that looks like a cauliflower phenotype or early flowering phenotype, you could have three or more copies of that gene in those diploids. And up to six copies of that gene in allopolyploids like Brassica nepis, Brassica carinata, and Brassica gensia. So the gene copy number problem is a big problem to sort out the, the gene or any phenotype. And then secondly, of course, all these, just like dogs, can be crossed to each other. And so it's very difficult to see what where things originated. Were they, did they originate over and over again, or did they move about by integration and hybridization? No, very good. And I, I guess it really does that, kind of does set the table, though, for the next question is, you know, where do we go next with the genes that are available within these species? And if we're start, starting to think about genetic improvements, um, what's... Um, What's currently happening in terms of genomic resources and genomic selection that's happening in the next rounds of improvement of these crops? Sure. So I think um, a lot of improvement um, in the future and even in the last you know, 30 years have been focused on taste level for a lot of these crops. So you have uh, uh, the Brussels sprouts of today are not the Brussels sprouts of your grandparents' generation, right? They are um, a lot mellower, a lot more palatable. And um, by selecting, so we don't necessarily need, we do have a lot of information on the glucosinolate pathway that's associated. Um, These are the mustard oils. Um, And because of things like Arabidopsis, we have insight into that pretty well. But so selecting on um, specific glucosinolate compounds that, that are both, that won't take away from the healthiness necessarily of the crop, but also will allow more people to um, consider putting it on their dinner plate. I think there is a lot of research um, into glucosinolates as far as anti-carcinogenic compounds as well. So there's a double-edged sword, like are we reducing um, the overall healthiness by making it more palatable? Well, no one's going to eat it, even if it's really great um, uh, to, against cancer. 
you know, it doesn't taste good. So it's balancing those relationships. I think there's also in the future, I'm looking at some um, uh, nutrient um, specific things like uh, vitamin A and other improvements that you can add to make it even more of a super crop that it already is. Are any of those uh, improvements likely to be bred in from those wild species, like things that are currently out there, maybe even those feral ones? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, part of my research is looking at um, the glucosinolates across um, across this tribe, so looking at other related species as, as well as multiple cultivars of what we have and these wild types and seeing, okay, is there something that's there in the wild that isn't present in our crop species and is that wild um, glucosinolate, does that prefer any benefit? Does it help it protect it against insects? Does it make it um, more uh, nutritious? Those types of things uh, in order to then take that information and people can use it for improving their crops. Well, this has all been really fascinating and hopefully we'll be able to revisit this again in the near future. But before we go, you know, Mackenzie and Sean, um, as graduate students right now and, and obviously really well versed in this topic, what do you imagine you'll be doing in a few years and what are your long-term aspirations? Uh, so, in a, hopefully graduate with a PhD first, <laughs> but uh, I would really like to go abroad and work and do a postdoc and then eventually end up in an academic position, hopefully with a lab of my own and continuing trying to understand Brassica oleracea as well as some other species that I uh, like as well for my master's research. Oh, really good. What about you, Sean? Um, yeah, so I, largely similar, similar to what Mackenzie said. I'm very interested in going into more of an academic route after hopefully a postdoc or maybe two. Um, and I'm interested in looking at um, the the tribe itself as well as use, using the incoming genomic resources we're going to be getting to better answer some of these questions of metabolite evolution and coevolution. Um, that I think will be a lot easier in the future. One thing I think both Sean and I really care a lot about, as well as our research, is reaching out to others as well. So one thing I really am passionate about is I've really enjoyed learning to do computer programming and sharing that with younger women that are learning, or younger girls, teaching them when they're young that they have these skills to be successful and something that makes them feel powerful. And Sean has yeah, and I, I, and I currently do and plan to continue doing work with um, an organization called OSTEM that supports LGBTQ people in STEM fields and supports their, um, their building safe spaces and educating companies about their um, about the how important it is to make space for LGBTQ people and make them feel safe in their positions. Well, awesome. You know, good on both of you. That's really great to hear you reaching out from beyond just the lab bench and, you know, hope more people are getting excited about that kind of thing. So thank you for that. Any other thoughts, Chris, about, uh, you know, about your further steps towards the Brachacopia? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have, uh, you know, I have on my board here is, is, uh, you know, federal funding for basic research um, declines, which is a global trend, not just in the U.S. So, you know, how can what we do be be science that really matters? You know, whether that's um, for making the better kale for Africa or um, thinking about a clever startup company. I think um, McKinsey has some ideas about making micro kales for <laughs> uh, hydroponic areas that can be grown in cities and um, – things like this and 
you know, my mission is to train the next generation of scientists who can handle big data, you know, from the farm and satellites to uh, the field and genomic regions. And so I'm going to keep on that mission here at the University of Missouri. No, hot stuff. Really, it's really awesome to hear all this stuff going on. And if you want to play with those funny new uh, micro kales under funny color lights, I know a guy you can talk to. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you very much for your time today. Um, so really appreciate it. Mackenzie Mabry, Sean Abrams, and Chris Pierce, we really appreciate your time. And uh, where, can we find more, where can we find more about your lab and maybe even find you on social media? You can come to our lab website. You can just Google Pierce Lab. Uh, we also all have Twitter accounts. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, a nice, if you do type in Dogs of the Plant World, you can probably find us on YouTube. Okay, sounds really good. Thank you very much for your time, and we'll talk to you pretty soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.